Inside the Adventure, episode 78, with the founders of Modern Huntsman, Brad Nethery and Tyler Sharp. If you've ever been afraid to step outside your comfort zone, then you're in the right place. Inside the Adventure features incredible athletes and everyday people sharing their epic stories of pushing life to its limits. Get ready to be inspired, face your fears, and take action with your host, Marshall Mosier. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Inside the Adventure. This is your host, Marshall Mosher, and today we've got a really unique episode with not just one, but two guests. The two founders of Modern Huntsman, Brad Nethery and Tyler Sharp. Brad and Tyler are both the founders of Modern Huntsman, a unique publication supported by some of the past guests we've had on the show, uh, including Chris Picard and several others, that seeks to stand together to fight for wildlife conservation, public land access, and ecological sustainability, all under the code of ethics that make the outdoors culture so strong. Tyler is a photographer, writer, and director who has spent over a decade documenting stories and adventures in the hunting, outdoor, and conservation arenas, who will share some insight into the roles that hunting plays in conservation and habitat preservation, as well as an awareness of the gaps in communication that exist between hunters and non-hunters. This eventually led Tyler to co-found Modern Huntsman and take up the charge as editor-in-chief of the publication in hopes of bridging the gap between those worlds correcting areas of misinformation, and challenging often outdated stereotypes. Brad was born and raised in the Dallas, Texas area, where he spent his younger years pursuing any outdoor adventure he could find throughout the in-between cracks of the suburban landscape. Uh, Didn't really have much of a background in hunting. In fact, he tended to make it a point to disassociate himself from hunters and the lifestyle of hunting, as he didn't much care for the stereotypical crown that culture had placed on the heads of hunters. It wasn't until recent years when that stereotype was flipped on its head for Brad and his paradigm of hunters was shattered. Along with Tyler, he created Modern Huntsman to exist as a platform where hunters and non-hunters could unite under common cause for the first time in modern history and together work towards a shared positive impact on wildlife conservation, land, and society. So my background is uh, a lot different than I think a lot of people might think it is. Um, You know, running a a brand that is designed really around the hunting community and to invite people into the hunting community. I don't have an extensive background in hunting or um, really even in the outdoor industry, but what I do have is a background in the creative industry. So I had former life owned a creative agency uh, based out of Dallas and our, my whole job, our whole job as an agency was to, um, position brands in the market where they communicated something they truly believed in, in a way that captivated an entire market, um, in a whole new way. And, 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 making sure that the the story wasn't about some superficial, you know, outside experience, but it was about something that really meant something from the heart. And um, I had a client who I had uh, um, worked with in the hunting and outdoor industry. And through that experience, I started to learn a lot about the, the, the hunting industry, not just the industry itself, but what it means to be a hunter. And growing up, I didn't like I said, I didn't hunt. I didn't have any sort of extensive background. And if I'm honest, I didn't really have a positive perception of hunters. Um, to say that I also had gone hunting with my dad about once a year 
Um, but it was more of a time for he and I to be out in, in a sunflower field um, to be together, father and son. And we might shoot one or two doves the whole day. But if anybody were to ever ask me if I was a hunter, I would have rejected that. And I a lot of times would kind of, you know, uh, lie that I had ever hunted because I just didn't want to be associated with it. I had this this stereotype in my head and I didn't want to be associated with that. And growing up in Texas, you know, most everybody hunts. However, there was still this kind of negative stigma that was built around it. So going into my agency experience and having this client who kind of helped to reframe my perspective, I started to talk to a lot of people and do a lot of research and figure out that this, this topic of, of hunting and conservation and, um, and, and people who are wildlife enthusiasts, these, these things go hand in hand and people who have extensive, um, passion for protecting public land. And these topics all go hand in hand. And in fact, hunters play one of the largest roles in, uh, wildlife conservation and, and protecting public lands and, um, and, uh, and ecology. And these are things I didn't know. You know, I had, again, I had this stereotype and this stigma that I'd kind of put in my head and, and it didn't have anything to do with, with, um, being a, a, a sustainable, um, ethical person. It was more about kind of the, the, um, arbitrary, you know, blast and cast mindset that I didn't really want to be a part of. And so through this, um, I kind of thought, you know, internally, if I feel this way where I had this negative perception of hunting and um, but now I've gotten to experience this in a totally different light through various mediums, whether it's creatives like writers and photographers and filmmakers or just talking to people who had extraordinary stories to tell or talking to scientists who, you know, did a lot of studies on how um, hunters play a significant role in ecology. I started to recognize like this thing needs to be communicated in a totally different light. And the way that um, both the general mass media and also the hunting media communicate the values of hunting is really, really far off from what it actually is and what I'd started to experience. And so for me, I kind of had this really unique conversion story personally and felt convicted to get it out. And, and to the hands of people who have otherwise, you know, felt like I did, who um, had a either an agnostic or negative perception of hunting, but hadn't necessarily turned the whole concept off because they're meat eaters or because, um, you know, they, they have grandfathers who hunted, you know, back in the day and they had respect for that style of hunting. But the way that it's perceived now, they didn't want to do anything, have anything to do with it. And so through that. And started to kind of um, dissect a little bit about, you know, what, what, is, what is a role that I can play in this to help to tell this story? And we started Modern Huntsman as um, just an Instagram channel that curated photography and films and writing from some of what I thought were the best case um, uh, creatives in the industry who were doing the most good but didn't have a great platform to tell their story on. And so that Instagram channel, um, while it was kind of just a, an, a, an ideal concept turned into this, you know, quasi movement. And, um, and through that, 
we started getting a lot of questions about, you know, what is this thing becoming? And um, what are you guys doing? And you guys was me at the time. And uh, I had no real experience in the, in the hunting industry. And so um, I didn't have a whole lot of answers to a lot of questions. And I knew that, you know, being that I was not the expert on the topic, but really more of an idealist of what it could be. Um, I started to do some research and, and um, talking to people about, you know, where could, where could this thing go and, and how could it become something that really does start to make significant positive change. And through a series of events, I was introduced to Tyler through a mutual friend who is uh, our editor-in-chief, Tyler's editor-in-chief. And um, I, I wanted to meet with him and talk to him about kind of joining our team as, you know, either a contributor of sorts or uh, an editor of sorts. And I honestly thought <clears throat> just, you know, I'd followed him on social media. I thought he lived in Montana or um, Africa or somewhere, you know, really exotic. And turned out he lived about 15 minutes away from me in Dallas, Texas. And so, uh, I reached out to him and right about the same time, I got a message of him proactively reaching out to me as well. And, uh, I'll let, I'll kick it over to him to carry from there. Sure. Uh, so I also, I also grew up in Texas, a combination of Austin and Dallas. And while I wasn't, you know, very devoted hunter. I certainly did a, a fair amount of hunting growing up, but more than that, I was always outside and, you know, catching turtles and snakes and, and reptiles or, you know, trying to find owls at night or, or whatever. So I always kind of, I always had a connection with the outside world. And then around high school, I got into photography and uh, had a teacher that was just really supportive. And, and she just, you know, I was going to go to, to UT here in Austin because that's just the path I was on and that's always what I wanted to do. And, and, you know, you're automatically into a state school in Texas if you're, you know, in the top 10% of your class. And one of my teachers said, well, did you ever think about going to USC in Los Angeles? Cause they've got a really good film and photography program. And I said, no, I never thought about that. So that kind of shifted my focus and my parents were like, damn it, you know, it's going to be expensive. <laughs> so anyways, I ended up going out to Los Angeles and studied film and photography out there uh, obviously had a, a mind opening experience. It was great to expand my horizons and meet new people, but quickly learned, well, quickly reaffirmed that I'm not a city person and spent most of my time there trying to get out of the city, going to Joshua tree or Sequoia or, or Yosemite or death Valley or, or whatever. And so, uh, I, I kind of was on this path of, of outdoors and photography anyways, and didn't really know what I was going to do. And I remember, um, so I got, lucky basically it's I, I don't know how to describe this other than just fortune and fate that my dad used to have a shop in dallas that did screen printing and embroidery and it was next door to a video editing shop and the owner of a safari company in tanzania came into this video shop and he had all this crappy footage and he wanted to make videos for his clients and the guy there was like well you need to hire a cameraman or, or a filmmaker who knows what they're doing to go over there and do this for you and the guy said great uh, and my dad just happened to be privy to this conversation and kind of threw my name in the hat and said, well, my son's about to graduate from USC and, you know, he'd love to go to Africa. So I get this random voicemail from my dad that he's like, well, uh, you know, I, whatever, I sent that package and, and we think we booked your flight home. And I think I got you a job in Tanzania when you graduate. <laughs> so in 2006, I graduated from college and uh, moved from LA back to Dallas, sold a bunch of my stuff and went to Africa and lived in the bush for almost six months. And, 
filming a combination of you know Kilimanjaro safaris, uh, fishing, hunting, adventure, just just general safari stuff, and uh, totally changed my life. And lived off the grid. Um, you know, stopped wearing a watch. Didn't have. I don't even think I, the first iPhone was out at this point. And uh, really, really had a life changing experience to the point when I came back to Dallas, it had complete culture shock and was just appalled with how high maintenance and, and bitchy, you know, modern society was about, Oh, my day was ruined because I had a flat tire or, you know, my, uh, you know, my, my new, uh, appliance isn't working or whatever it was compared to, you know, situations I had been in where lions had entered our tent or we were getting charged by rogue elephants or, you know, people who are on the brink of starvation and just sort of became embedded in that world. I became fascinated with it. And there's an organization called the Dallas Safari Club that's based in Dallas that, you know, sort of a, a convention every year where all of these outfitters and, you know, anglers and mountain climbers and, you know, gun shotgun makers and, and whatever show up in the city for four days. And so I started going to that and meet, meeting people and, and just trying to get my name out and finding a way to get back over there and managed to do that. And over the course of three years, you know, sort of landed a job with several different TV shows on the Outdoor Channel and a few private families who travel all over the world hunting and went to almost 25 countries in three years. And so, I mean, all over Africa, Pakistan, Russia, Nepal, Mexico, I mean, anything that, um, you know, existed in terms of, of high adventure or hunting, I basically got to do. Uh, but I got a little burned out because uh, I saw a spectrum of you know, to quote our ecology editor, Charles Post, uh, a lot of situations of, of best practices and could be better. So there was a lot of people who were incredibly respectful, ethical hunters who did care about conservation or were trying to respect, you know, the local culture. And then there was people who, who weren't doing that. But my experience, what sort of led to Modern Huntsman was that when I would come back from these places, from, from Africa or from Russia or some of these hunts, I had often violent reactions from friends and family, uh, people who really had no understanding of how the situation worked. And, and their reaction was based on their emotions, that they had read something online or they saw some Facebook post and or they saw a PETA demonstration. And so I was getting attacked and getting questioned about why what I was, you know, what, why was what I was doing? Okay. How could I justify it? And this and was initially your, your friends and family, right? Like the people uh, that were pretty it, close to you? Yeah, or colleagues, you know, and I think that initially in 2006, 2007, I didn't really know how to answer that because I had been in the bush, right? And all I knew is that this was a village, uh, you know, approved program that the village had a say in what, you know, areas could be hunted and, and they had a, a, they would do population censuses and determine how many animals of each species there were and that determined how many tags were issued and the, the you know, the village got 30% of those fees for schools and wells and medical and all that. And so it was, you know, an absolutely um, a collaborative conservation effort that was a good deal across the board. But the but people back, back at home were thinking something else. What were they, what were they saying? Well, you know, they, I mean, think about what you see on the news, right? Or you see it on sensationalized Facebook posts about, oh, these murderers go over and kill these beautiful animals um, and that kind of thing. But they really don't have an understanding of the role that that hunting plays and the tens of millions of dollars it generates every year that goes directly to conservation. And so I think it's a difficult pill for people to swallow that, you know, the death of one animal protects so many more. Um, and so anyways, it just kind of put me on this path of trying to explain that to people. 
And so uh, the, the kind of twofold discovery I had was that people within the hunting industry have a terrible method of explaining, you know, it's a room full of, of members of the same club in a room all agreeing with each other. And then when they leave that room and they face the public, a non-hunting public, the the conversation ceases to be productive. So I saw a problem there with the way that hunting was being uh, presented and communicated about. And then the other side of that is that the non-hunting public was largely misinformed or, or uneducated about hunting's role in conservation or its effects on ecology or its absolute necessity in certain cases with wildlife management and, and, you know, population dynamics and that kind of stuff. So all of that to say, it sort of underlied everything I did for almost a decade. Um, and I, I didn't know what it was going to be called. I didn't know how I was going to do it. And then I saw Modern Huntsman pop up on Instagram and I thought, wow, this is interesting. What, what is this? This, I really like the, the, you know, the aesthetic here and he seems like he's curating, you know, some quality work. And so, uh, in the same way, I assumed this was in Bozeman or Denver or Seattle, and it turns out Brad was in Dallas. And so we met for coffee, you know, probably about three years ago, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. And he kind of described, you know, he, he was thinking about doing a magazine and, and you kind of wanted to do this movement. Basically, he was trying to create a forum to present this type of work that currently didn't exist. And I said, hey, look, this is going to sound weird because we just met, but what you're <laughs> describing is probably going to be my life's work, and you need to hire me as your creative director right now. He's very, uh, you know, <laughs> just very passive person. <laughs> so, right, right, so very, very, it, it just it was a really sur- it was a really surreal experience because he's basically unfolding the other half of my vision, uh, the, the 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 other side that I didn't have, right? The the marketing plan the distribution, uh, the way you brand it. Um, and then I had everything else, which was the experience in the industry, how to navigate an in- unbelievably complex political landscape, how to avoid those pitfalls. Um, and then how, you know, obviously having a lot of friends and, and colleagues in the industry, um, people who are doing it right. And, um, and then people who are doing it right, but haven't been given the platform don't have a voice or they've never been published. And so we sort of banded together uh, to create, you know, what this could be and and what was possible. And then, you know, we had to scale that back a little bit about, okay, well, we have no money. So what do we, how do we get this thing off the ground and kind of landed on, on, on a Kickstarter, um, which we launched uh, two years ago. No, No, one year ago. One year ago. Yeah. Last September. Yeah. So we raised about a hundred grand uh, to produce the first volume. And so we entirely self-funded that without any sort of um, corporate sponsors or anything like that. And, and, and part of this at that, uh, at that point was modern huntsman still that Instagram channel and you're kind of figuring out how do we make that first version? How do we take it further than this? What was kind of the, the state of the idea and, and the company when you guys met and, and how you took it further from there? Yeah. I mean, it was literally just an Instagram channel and a conceptual website like more like a landing page actually and tyler and i and our other partner elliot had really been wrestling through this topic of uh, a publication and i mean it's for people um in the industry and like the hunting uh industry or really hunting and fishing this is a totally new concept that what we've what we've created it's a it's a 200 volume two is a 250 page um you know thick uh, Matt stock 
book that's you know littered with photography and doesn't have a single interruption ad in the whole book. Um, and it's something that you know if you're familiar with traditional magazines, this totally shatters that paradigm. Um, but for people who are outside the industry, maybe you're familiar with independent magazines. It's something that feels a lot more like Kinfolk or Serial Magazine or um, Collective Quarterly, um, where you know this is this is not a completely new idea. But in this industry, um, there's just there's historically been a, a lack of creativity and a lack of of thoughtful, non-intrusive. Um, uh, creative communication that helps to, like Tyler said, you know, this is hunting has become such a political topic. And I think a lot of it is because the, the hunting industry has done itself such a disservice by every time there's pushback or negative criticism from, from the outside, their response usually is something that's very aggressive and very polarizing where, you know, we have chosen to take the approach of speaking with, you know, in a totally different tone. If we're to, if we're to kind of boil down to the very nth degree of what modern huntsman stands represent is to change the tone of what hunting um, is. Because if you talk to a hunter in a, in a, in a one-on-one conversation, their tone is not aggressive. Typically the, the majority of them is very respectful, very honorable. It's just when you get to media, it starts to, you know, you, you take the face-to-face idea out of it. People get really grumpy and irritable on social media or, in front of a camera or posting, you know, on a discussion board. And so that's what people have as a frame of reference. And so our, our choice is to navigate the frame of reference a hell of a lot differently and change the tone by speaking with clarity, speaking with inspiration, not, not um, responding with, uh, with aggression or, uh, or criticism, but instead taking everything um, that we receive and and turning it into a positive and um, all of our contributors all of our our editor our editorial team our designers i mean they have this same vision the same ideal of what the industry could and should be if we want to see this thing stick around and not be something we read about in textbooks Absolutely. And once you were able to raise that Kickstarter campaign and, and have all the tools and, and kind of the firepower ready to, to go out and really make that first version of this idea a reality, uh, kind of what was the way that you made that, that impact so strong and so powerful with such an awesome result in that first version? What was kind of, what was the secret sauce that you launched with, um, that made it so incredible? I think that it really comes down to the individual people that we, you know, sort of curated for that book. You know, I have worked for the majority of magazines in the outdoor space, um, and some of them are a more positive experience than others. And so apart from the actual content, we wanted to structure this uh, and and for better or worse, across the board with our company and our mission, we're trying to do something new and something innovative um, and, and something that someone hasn't done before, which is hard to do in, in this you know day and age. But we did it in a way where, you know, a lot of these magazines that I worked for, it didn't really feel like you were part of the team. 
you know, once it went live in print, you never really heard anything else about it. You had to get out a damn magnifying glass to find who took the photo. You know, the photo credit's super small. It's in the spine. Um, and so we structured this in a different way where this was built around the integrity and the quality of these people's work. And we gave them a percentage of the sales, which basically made them part of the team. So we, you know, and all of them have, you know, sizable online followings. So that gives them incentive to talk about it more. And, you know, I sort of individually discussed with every person, um, you know, what, what we wanted to do a story about. Um, and, you know, I think that we were trying to keep it fairly introductory in volume one. We wanted it to be a, a general theme. We didn't want it to be too specialized. And and that way people would kind of introduce them to, okay, this is the direction we're going. This is the tone we're taking. Uh, th- this is what this is going to look like. Uh, and, and, you know, we hope that you'll, this is an easy entry point, which I think we did successfully. Um, you know, we, the, the cover images that we've chosen are not, you know, immediately about hunting. It's they're they're beautiful images that, um, you know, speak to someone who appreciates design and, and clean photography. And my girlfriend, Katie Smith, um, is her studio is called drop cap design. She's our design director. And she's coming from this, from, from a design world. She wants to win design awards. And so apart from what Brad wants to do or what I want to do or where the contributors are speaking to, she's using incredibly, um, you know, sophisticated design philosophies and uh, very specific typography selections that are just boosting everything that we do. And I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there who agree with what we're saying. And, but that's not, the industry, the industry that these big box brands and, you know, these TV shows, it, it's kind of gone uh, in a direction that, that we don't feel is connected to. And we feel doesn't represent this tradition in, in the most respectful and honorable way. And so we're basically just showing an alternative route. And, and the people who feel the same way as we, as we do typically live um, a little more quiet lives and uh, aren't as outspoken. And, you know, they're out hunting food for their family and they're making clothing and jewelry from, you know, the feathers and the antlers and the, and the hides and things like that. Uh, and so we're trying to showcase some of that, but at the same point offer an entry point for, you know, if there's a, a young guy or gal that lives in Brooklyn and, you know, maybe they've always been interested in Roosevelt and Hemingway or, uh, or you know, or, or things like that. And they want to, you know, maybe they want to go bird shooting. Okay. Well, how, how do they do that in their state? You know, how, how do you get access to a license, a shotgun? Where can you go? How does it work? And so we're trying to provide some entry points for, for those types of folks as well. And we're not necessarily trying to convert everyone to hunting, but we're basically trying to improve the perception of hunting. And so, yes, this is a magazine for hunters and conservationists, but it's also for everybody else that's, you know, the 70 whatever percent mm-hmm. of the population that doesn't hunt we want them to be able to not flinch when they walk into a store and they see a photo of a kayaker next to, you know, a bird hunter mm-hmm. or see, you know, somebody who's packing out a massive elk that they hunted with a bow and arrow in Montana next to a guy who's ice climbing, that that shouldn't be that out of uh, the ordinary. And the dialogue has become so polarized and so conflicting. And, and this is what volume two is about, about public lands is that, 
we really were trying to raise the banner on, okay, it doesn't matter if you're holding a shotgun or a fishing rod or an ice axe or you're going hiking. I think we can all rally around the, the, the philosophy that public land in the United States is, is important and that we should you know, celebrate the use of this amazing resource that we have instead of bickering over what we're doing on the land. You've got some incredible people that have come on board and supported the mission as well. Uh, even one of our past uh, podcast guests, Chris Picard, uh, is uh, is one of the people that's helping to support it. How did you go out and and find all these amazing people um, to uh, to come and help support that vision and and that passion and and really help share that message that you've done such a great job of sharing? Well, thanks for the kind words. Um, I think with with Volume One. It was, we handpicked everybody. In most, in most cases, it was people that I had uh, already worked with and who already knew and trusted. Um, and then some of those people were also people that Brad had worked with. And it required quite a, a high level of trust from them because we literally, <laughs> we had nothing. We had no money. We had a bunch of promises. So many promises. <laughs> and thankfully, we delivered on those promises and it exploded. I mean, we sold almost 8,000 copies of the first issue. And so after that, the conversation changed and we had a lot more people knocking on the door. Um, but I don't know if you're familiar with Charles Post, but he's, um, you know, been a, a huge help. He's been my, my sort of editorial right hand through the process. And so we brought him on for the second issue to help us pick, handpick people. And so we want to make sure that as we move forward, we're choosing, sure, people who are influential you know, talented photographers and writers in the hunting space, but we also want to slowly start to expand the diversity of our contributorship, whether that's, you know, men and women, whether that's United States or the UK or other parts of the world, hunters or non-hunters. And so Charles has worked, he's friends with Chris Burkhardt and he's worked with him on, on several projects. And I said, I mean, do you think that he would be interested in being a part of this issue, given that he's such an advocate for public lands? And I really had low expectations for that. And uh, Charles reached out to him and he was like, because Chris is also a vegan. Yeah, he's a vegan non-hunter and obviously very, very much involved in the outdoor space. So I I literally had very little hope that he would be interested in participating. Um, But not only that, he agreed to be on the cover. So to have one of Chris Burkhardt's photos on the front cover of a hunting magazine, to me, is an incredibly uh, is a sign of success. It's very symbolic for what we're trying to do. That we are trying to help bridge the gap between these two worlds, or more than just two worlds. And the fact that he saw what we were doing, he saw uh, the sort of you know backing and, and momentum that we had, and and uh, and he believed that the mission we were doing was worth supporting. And, and so we were incredibly fortunate to have him. Um, and, and so you know, and I'll let Brad jump in here on the sort of social media uh, digital side, but. Most of this is, you know, we kind of think about, okay, for this issue, what are we, what are we discussing? What do we want to accomplish with that conversation? Um, what do we want people to take away when, when they're done with this issue? And then from there, we sort of handpick a, a diverse array of people that can help us, you know, accomplish that goal. Ideally, also people who have, you know, voices and platforms and, and followings of their own, because at the end of the day, um, you know, we want people to see this and we want this to get out there because the more books we sell and the more people that read these stories, the more likely it is that we're going to accomplish our goal. And I want to jump kind of back into your earlier question about 
you know, how did this thing take off at the, at the rate that it did? Um, one of the things that really mattered to me and I think to everybody who kind of joined on in the early days was that we kind of reverse engineered the whole idea of how do you build a business? And if this is, you know, like, a this is not a good business one-on-one, uh, uh, course, um, the idea started as a, as a mission in my mind, right? This was kind of a, I felt some sort of a conviction and knew that, you know, in some capacity I needed to start to, you know, move the needle forward. And so, um, the first thing that happened was, um, through the Instagram channel, we started to build an audience under a mission. And what I was finding was that there were more people who were, um, vegetarians or, uh, you know, people who didn't formally have a, a heavy, um, you know, positive perception of hunting who were following and who were reaching out and saying, Hey, this is kind of interesting. And, uh, this is kind of a side that I've never heard before. What is this? Um, and I, I was having, you know, at the same time, we had a lot of hunters who were joining the conversation and, and people who were kind of coming in with a very refreshed feel saying like, I, this is what I've always wanted. And this is something that I've always tried to communicate to my friends who don't hunt and it never comes out the way I want it to. And so I can just show them this feed and it helps them to really, you know, dial in on, on, it's not just the old redneck sport that you think it is. And, um, by the time we went to Kickstarter, you know, we had, we had a significant audience built in and a significant movement was starting. Like there was a, there was a, a crowd of people who were interested and willing to do their part to help make this thing come to life. And I think that's what really to us meant the most is when we went to Kickstarter, you know, we had no ideas. We set a very high expectation of, of raising a goal of $75,000. And everybody told us to start at like, if you're going to go to Kickstarter for a book in the hunting industry, like Kickstarter is not your platform. You know, you gotta, like, I don't know what you're going to do, but that's not your platform. And if you do it, you gotta you gotta set a goal of ten thousand dollars or something less because it's it's never gonna hit that point, and I don't think there's another publisher that's raised over fifty thousand dollars on Kickstarter, and so we had um, you know we set this audacious goal because we had a, a following of people who um, genuinely believed in the mission of what we were up to and knew that we had a genuine uh, approach to accomplishing our mission. And so when we went to Kickstarter, we were just overwhelmed with the response of both the influx of people that, you know, when we started to promote it on our own platforms, that it, that, you know, people were responding and ready and eager to participate and donate and do whatever they could to see this thing come to life. And then people from the Kickstarter community who had never really experienced um, this side of things, they also got excited about what this was. And so, you know, as we start to move forward and Tyler talked about bridging the gap and, and, you know, he's exactly right. Uh, Chris's photo on the cover is such a, a symbol and a representation for us of what we're trying to do by bridging the gap between um, hunters and non-hunters, um, you know, vegans and meat eaters, um, you know, grocery store shoppers and trappers like this. This particular topic that's in front of us has become polarizing over decades um there was not always this uh you versus me complex 
that existed between people who hunted and people who didn't in a society where you have no alternative. You know, we don't have grocery stores. We don't have markets, whatever it is where you were literally the way that you survive is to capture and and uh, kill your own your own food source. It's not so polarizing, but when you have an option as a luxury, and I'm so grateful that we do here in the States have plenty of options to choose from, it becomes a little bit more political. Um, and so the, the thing that we were so grateful for from the very beginning was that we had captivated an audience who was fully invested in what message we were putting out there and the tone that we were using and that they've stuck with us, you know, from day one until now and have only begun, only become more invested in, in this particular topic. So, um, and we're just, we're grateful more than anything else. I love it. And it's, it's so clear that this mindset and this topic has been such a needed, uh, kind of highlight in, in the industry, uh, especially given how many, uh, how many, um, uh, how many volumes you've, you've been able to sell and, and how much success you've had. But I'm sure before you were able to release that very first version, there must've been some maybe small doubts in the back of your mind of, you know, how is this going to work? Uh, you know, what if we don't really hit the quota we need to make? So when you finally got the success that you were hoping for after that first volume, what were some of the thoughts that were going through your head and some of the things you were feeling in terms of what you wanted to kind of take that initial momentum and, and do in the future? We've been perfect from day one. <laughs> right, right. No, I think, yes. I, I, you know, I really, to be honest, I just, I, I never had a doubt that this wouldn't take off. I really didn't. I, there was, there's times where we worried about, okay, how the hell are we going to pay for what we need to pay for in time? Right. And I think it's a life struggle for me to translate the difference between what I know is possible and what I can dream up and the timeline of what, how that's going to happen. Um, and so I, I really had no doubt that we would make the Kickstarter. Um, I didn't think that we would do as well as we did. Um, but I think that for better or worse, you know, our sort of philosophy up to this point, or at least our, our, our MO has been, you know, we've had a lot of people say, oh, well, that's, that's not going to work or good luck with that. Or in the case of volume two about public lands, you know, people given a sort of uh, pushback and saying, oh, you're not, you're not going to be able to get people like Chris Burkhardt involved in this issue. And, you know, our response up to this point has been like, hey, thanks for your input. We're going to do it anyways. <laughs> and I think that's really been uh, a strength of ours that we believe in what we're doing and we know what's possible because there's a lot of naysayers and there's a lot of people who, uh, you know, just don't think that we can pull it off. We're and, pretty persistent. Yeah. And so I think that we've had to be pretty scrappy. Um, but Brad and I are both very convicted people and, um, you know, we've both kind of run ourselves into the ground trying to get this thing going. And, and we have been so focused and so, you know, just nose to the grindstone that we really didn't think much about, of anything other than just getting to the next step. And now we're at a point where, you know, we've, we've had incredible success with the second volume to the point where we have started to realize that some of the larger possibilities that we've been discussing are, are very, very real in 2019. And, um, you know, while we can't 
necessarily formally announce it, you know, something that we're going to be pursuing pretty soon is a grant program where we would be, um, you know, opening it up for submissions for young photographers, filmmakers, writers, conservationists, to where we would be able to award money to people that we think uh, need to be you know, supported and continue to do great work or start a new project that they, you know, wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And so I think that you know, as we kind of move forward with all of this, um, you know, we, Brad and I dream big. And so we have, we know what this could be on a larger scale, but we're making sure that as we move forward, we're not losing sight of, you know, the, the individual uh, people and, and the ethos. And, and we don't want to be swept up uh, into this sort of shimmer of a, of a big brand or, or corporate funding because we do not want to compromise or let go any any of the virtue and, and creative control that that we've established absolutely and i think you've done an amazing job of of that so far um, and i know that you you said that you kind of take it one step at a time and just kind of keep your head down and, and really be so focused and so persistent uh that sometimes some of those thoughts of you know what if don't cross your mind um but look kind of looking on the other end looking at the future especially given the um the response that the the audience has, has given you so far with the first two volumes what's the the plan and the vision for ultimately what you want the company to become and the impact that you want to have well i think i'll I'll speak to the media side and then i'll let brad kind of speak to the brand and marketing side but i think that you know for me uh there's not really a place where you can go you know there's lots of brands like yeti and and sitka and, and epic that are that are you know sponsoring and producing some amazing films about hunting and conservation, but you got to go to seven different YouTube channels or, you know, maybe you get lucky and there's a film tour coming through town. There's not really a centralized location where you can go and view this work. And so we definitely want to move into the multimedia space as well. We we released a film recently uh, that our friends, the Pace brothers produced out of Scotland uh, about uh, the tar situation in New Zealand. Um, We're going to release a new film towards the end of the year with several of our other contributors, but we want to be producing our own films. Uh, and ideally we would be able to sort of piggyback that with the brands and organizations that we're involving in future issues of the magazine. So it's sort of a coordinated release of the book with films and, you know, surrounding online stories that go with it. Um, and to the point where, you know, ideally we would be producing our own digital webisodes or, you know, potentially even pitching something to, to Netflix or Hulu, um, or maybe we just start our own broadcast Avenue. Um, and so I think that, you know, yes, the book is our sort of main mission in print. Um, we are hoping to quickly expand into a multimedia, uh, ventures, um, that allows, you know, I, I think we could all agree that, you know, video is one of the most powerful ways to get a message across and, and, you know, and, and things that people engage with. So we definitely want to scale that up in addition to just producing more content, right? We want to have lots of stories on the website. Um, and, and ideally we're able to continue to find brands who support, uh, and appreciate what we're doing. And we have, and, you know, we're evolving those conversations. And, and part of that is why we're here in Austin. We've got a couple of meetings today with, with companies who um, see what we're doing and they see the value of it and they don't want to mess with it. And it's not, you know, people understand they can't just slap their logo on something that we would strategically sort of pair, you know, a photographer or writer who already 
is in line with that brand's ethos and then kind of empower them, you know, and say, okay, well, we've got three, these three stories in the next six months they're going to work on. And that company can be a presenter of those kind of thing. And so, um, and I'm, I'm going to let Brad jump in on, on the other side. Yeah. And I mean, um, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but, um, so to backstep this all the way back, Modern Huntsman's a biannual publication. And so we release two issues per year and we've got ambitions to go quarterly in the next couple of years, um, which sounds really, really challenging right now. But as we've started to see some success and, and been able to grow our editorial team, that feels a lot more attainable at this point in time. And volume one was kind of an introductory issue, which um, covered a really broad variety of topics and uh, nuanced ideas and philosophies that was kind of a roadmap to give people an understanding of what the holistic idea of what Modern Huntsman was about. Volume two, we took a stance and we produced a, a publication that was built around the theme of public land. And it was our first way to kind of introduce that each issue will be themed. And uh, volume three, um, we're going to be in, producing uh, about wildlife management. Um, volume four will likely be a women's issue. Um, and then we'll kind of expand each issue to, to, to um, further dig into these little nuanced ideas and topics. Um, and so alongside kind of what Tyler was talking about, as we grow our multimedia space, it will all be underneath an umbrella of one very uh, hyper-focused targeted concept that um, we're not ever presenting ourselves as necessarily the experts with the end-all be-all ideas and opinions, but rather each contributor presenting their philosophy, ideas, and beliefs as a new challenging paradigm to consider when thinking about certain issues. And we found that that has been a really effective way to communicate because when you, when you don't pose something as an answer, but you pose it as a question, it shifts how people respond and it shifts how they fundamentally believe in something. Um, and so from my side, as we start to um, grow this concept and, and really, you know, figure out where is this brand going? Um, you know, I've got, I've got my own ambitions to, um, you know, if, if somebody ever says, what is modern huntsman? My response is always, it's a philosophy. It's an ideal. It's not, it's not a book. It's not uh, a creative studio. It's not film production. It's, it's an ideal. And what we produce and what we distribute should be a response to that ideal. And it should help to captivate and make more clear um, the ideals that we have created and set out not to be unapproachable and um, unrealistic, but to be something that is um, has actionable measure to um, kind of get back to a state in society where um, you know we we're we're seeing this more rightly um, than it is today. And so you know where where I have my sights focused is really you know partnering with my team and our contributors to um, continue to develop the brand in a way that whatever we decide to produce and distribute, that the theme of it all should rest upon the shoulders of rewriting the narrative of hunting in order to restore the perception and that we give people something totally new 
and and idealistic to think about. I love that being so focused on on that ideal. I think is is really important to a lot of the people um, that have been such a big part of the movement. And for anyone else that's listening that that has an ideal that they really want to pursue themselves, what advice would both of you guys give to how you take that first step and and how you get started with turning that ideal into a movement uh, that can further that industry and that space and provide something that hasn't been provided before? I'll start. Um, Mine would be be resilient and fearless. Um, Fear is polarizing. I'm sorry. Fear is paralyzing and um, no good comes from it. And we've had, we've had points, you know, we're not perfect at this. We've had many points in the development of uh, process of, of modern husband just in the past year alone where, you know, me, Tyler and our other partner, Elliot, we've just sat in the room paralyzed with fear, whether it's fear of next steps or fear of growth or f- whatever it is, small things, big things, whatever. And in every single one of those situations, no progress happens. And when we can come to an agreement that, you know, we can say, hey, yes, this is in front of us. Yes, we're going to have to face this. However, let's face it head on and go in fearless um, is when we actually start to get past that and create something incredible. Um, and the second thing is, you know, going back to the topic I talked about earlier, you know, we got a lot of validation and a lot of credibility in building the audience first. You know, we figured out that I figured out that, that there are people like me who, you know, had this hopefulness of what hunting could be and wasn't being communicated uh, at at a level that it could be um, the way that we're doing it today. And, and so being able to leverage the tools that we have right in front of us, like social media and like, um, you know, from my digital marketing background, like analytics platforms and, you know, just understanding that there's a group of people that think the way I do, that feel the way I do was really, really helpful for me and was really clear that, you know, if, if I'm the only person that cares about a particular topic, well, it may not start a movement. (laughs) I may just be somebody who's grumpy and irritable, but if there's a a swath of people who also feel that way, man, that's a good chance that if you can find them and unite them under a commonality that they'll join forces with you and, and they'll unite and they'll come together and, and they'll do whatever it takes to make it come to life. And it's amazing what happens when you find a group of people like that, even if it's small, um, that were, are willing and able to use whatever resources necessary and attainable to help bring the mission to life. Because nobody is trying to help Brad and Tyler advance their personal careers. Everybody feels ownership in what we're doing. And we want it to be that way. I think I'd agree with Brad on the resiliency and and I always joke about, I would love to create a wall of failure of every project over the last, you know, 11 or 12 years that I thought was going to be the big break or that was going to, you know, take off or it was going to bring in a ton of money, all of which crashed and burned and died a painful death. Um, And I would love to have all of those on a wall that I could throw darts at or something. And so I might do that at some point. So I, I think that it definitely, um, you know, it requires yourself to be, you know, to get back on the horse. And, you know, I, I, I kind of balance between, you know, giving people false hope and motivation. But, you know, I think you're certainly never going to accomplish anything if you don't try. And 
I think that one of the things that has allowed us to sort of accomplish what we've accomplished is that we have a pretty diverse the three of us that founded this are very different and we all have different strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, Brad is the eternal enthusiast and <laughs> I'm somewhere in the middle. And then our other partner, Elliot is our professional no guy. <laughs> and I think that, you know, being incredibly skeptical and realistic and sort of uh, playing devil's advocate in almost every situation. And, and just, I don't view myself as you know creative or an editor in chief, I always say that I view myself as a long-term chess player, that we are trying to, you know, strategically outmaneuver and outflank every naysayer, uh, political blowback, you know, misinterpretation of a post or story we've done. And not that we're trying to water it down, but we're trying to present it in a way almost in the, in the same situation as debate. If we have a perfectly sound presentation of information, there's really not some anything someone can say other than maybe they just don't agree with it, right? But uh, I think that's goes back to what Brad said about we're not trying to present ourselves as the expert. We are trying to cultivate a forum where constructive conversations can happen uh, through the presentation of a very diverse group of you know knowledgeable and respectful opinions and perspectives. Through all those failures, and I love the the idea of that wall of failure, uh, Tyler, that's great. <laughs> uh, but through, through all those different initiatives that didn't work out the way you wanted them to work out, what gave you the the courage and and the drive to to keep going? I don't I don't know. I wish I knew because if I knew, then I would drink more of it. But I, I guess it's just part of my nature um, that for better or worse, I've just been incredibly stubborn and persistent. And, and whether that's, you know, uh, about a project like this, or this is about, you know, winning over oh, uh, my girlfriend kind of thing. I, it's just one of those things where, um, you know, I, I go all in and fully believe uh, in, in what I do. And, and if I don't believe in it, then I don't do it. And it was almost a breaking point in my career where I stopped taking work that I felt like was distracting me from the goal and have kind of gotten to a point where whether it's with Modern Huntsman, uh, a contributor or a brand that we're discussing uh, a partnership with, or if it's me as a freelancer um, getting approached by a brand to do work, if I don't personally align and believe in what they're doing and saying, then I have no interest in being involved. And so I think that it really comes down to knowing yourself as a person and what you stand for and what you don't stand for where your flexibility is in your virtue and moral, or maybe you have none. And I think that that's kind of important for you to know who you are, where you want to go and how you're going to get there. And not just, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm just going to quit my job and go do this. Like you got to have a plan. And, and then ideally you find people who, you know, can support you or believe in what you're doing and, or shoot holes in your plan. Right. And if you can patch the holes in the boat, great. Otherwise, you know, maybe you just get a new boat. So I think that it's just I, I don't know if that's an answer or not, but I, I don't really know how to explain it other than I just don't know anything else than just to keep going, uh, because I know that I feel like I have something to offer and I feel like I have something to say. And whether people like it or not, I have a platform now. So <laughs> <laughs> I also think as an, as an encouragement, um, 
anytime that you're talking to somebody or you listen to a podcast and you hear about somebody's success story, if it's nominal success or great success, typically, you know, like we're doing right now, we spend 1% of the time on the failures and we spend 99% of the time talking about the successes when in reality, it's really flipped. You know, we spend more time failing at things than we do succeeding at things. And that's, um, you know, typically when I hear somebody talk about their failures, I, I water down what their failures actually were. And I have almost like a, uh, uh, a really pipe dream vision of what their failures actually looked like. And, um, you know, I put in my head that, that the people who, who are successful, who have experienced failures, that it was kind of a, a utopian failure. And um, and that they didn't really feel a whole lot of emotion. They stayed very high optimism, very energetic through it, knowing that they were going to have their project succeed. And in reality, you know, when you fail at something, you feel depressed and you feel like, you know, your whole world's just crumbling down. And and oh, yeah, I know that that guy had seen success after his failures. But man, this one this one's just got our lunch, you know, and we're not going to make it through this this particular hurdle. And it takes, um, you know. I believe it takes a great team of people who can realistically look at the situations and encourage each other to not get down to, Hey, you know, you're really good at this. So do this. Don't worry about, you know, what stands in front of us, just do this. And when you have that team of encouragers and of motivators and people who are, who are high energy, high enthusiasm, and also high skill. And we have a very, very talented team. Um, it changes the way that you approach failures so that, you know, even though, you know, we have more fires to put out than we do, you know, champagne bottles to pop open. Um, we, we don't let those fires consume us. You know, we let them be the motivators that drive us further into, um, creating something extraordinary. And so, you know, just as an encouragement, if you're creating something, that's worthwhile, man, don't let those fires consume you and don't be managing them 24 seven. Um, be on top of them, be ready to fight and, and continue the battle because there's something worthwhile that needs to be said. Thanks for listening to another episode of Inside the Adventure. That was the story of Tyler and Brad from Modern Huntsman, who, by the way, just launched volume three. It's absolutely amazing. It's totally work of art. If you resonated with the themes and the mission of what they are trying to do and the conservation efforts that they are working towards, definitely go visit modernhuntsman.com. Support their efforts by getting the latest volume. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And I know you'll be just as impressed as I am.